This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin. Today, I'm joined by Sam Jeske, Senior Fellow here at MP and friend of the pod, Lauren Baer. Lauren, thanks for coming back on with us. Thanks for having me back on. It's been a while. It has been a while, but we're really glad we could get you back. Uh, For our audience, uh, Lauren is a former senior policy advisor at the State Department and a Democratic nominee for Florida's 18th Congressional District back in 2018. And this is her her third time on the Millennial Politics Podcast. Um, But maybe for our new listeners who may not be so familiar with you, could you start by just giving them your background, your journey, um, and remind us how you made your way to the State Department? Certainly. So uh, I'm I'm a lawyer by training, also have a a background in foreign policy. So started my career as a litigator, but joined the Obama administration uh, at the beginning of 2011. I spent five years as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, which is essentially the internal strategy and innovation unit for the Secretary of State. So worked for Hillary Clinton uh, and then John Kerry. And at the end of the administration, I was a senior policy advisor to Samantha Power, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. So a big piece of news over the past couple of days is the dismissal of the State Department Inspector General Steve Linick. And reporting says that the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, urged President Trump to fire the Inspector General because of investigations into waste and fraud in the Secretary's office. First, can you just tell us a little bit about what the role of the Inspector General is at the State Department? Sure. So the inspector general uh, at the State Department plays um, essentially the same role that an inspector general plays at any federal agency. He's uh, an individual who's there to exercise independent oversight of the agency, uh, make sure that they're following the law, that there isn't any waste, fraud or abuse. Um, essentially, the, the office keeps the, uh, the agency on the up and up. In light of that context, knowing that the inspector general basically holds that department accountable. What's your take not only on the recent accusations of waste and fraud against Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, but the removal and dismissal of him, the inspector general? So I think what this shows is a pretty brazen attempt uh, by by Donald Trump to undermine uh, proper oversight of his administration. It seems to be even further proof uh, that Trump thinks that that he himself is above the law. Um, I don't think we should look at this firing in isolation. It's it's actually part of a string of uh, firings of inspectors general Um, since uh, his impeachment trial earlier this year. uh, No fewer than four have been dismissed missed by Trump and his administration. And what it creates is a really um, disturbing pattern of uh, getting rid of those individuals who uh, would hold uh, Trump and his administration to account, who are trying to make sure that they're actually uh, abiding by the, the letter of the law and the work that's being done. So like we said, one of the accusations was about um, waste and fraud in the office and the Secretary of State using the resources of the office for personal use. Um, But one of the other ones that just broke recently 
was that the inspector general had mostly completed an investigation into the decision by Pompeo to fast track an $8 billion arms deal to Saudi Arabia. Can you tell us a little bit about what this deal was and the circumstances maybe surrounding this emergency declaration to fast track this arms deal and maybe how unusual that circumstance is? Sure. So, so what you saw in um, in this case. Uh, so, let me take a step back for a moment. Um, normally, uh, if there's a, an arms sale to a foreign country, um, that that arms deal is is going to be uh, approved by Congress. And what Donald Trump did in uh, this situation is essentially create um, an emergency declaration to allow him to bypass uh, those rules to directly sell arms. Uh, to, to Saudi Arabia, despite um, congressional concerns. And why this should be worrying is because there's been a, a general undermining of Congress's oversight of uh, Trump's ability to um, conduct uh, foreign affairs. Uh, in this case, the uh, Congress was particularly concerned about Saudi Arabia's uh, role in, in the ongoing war uh, in, in Yemen. And so the, the very troubling concern the inspector general was examining here um, was whether Trump really had a, a genuine reason um, to need to sell arms uh, right away or whether he was just trying to get around um, the oversight that, that Congress is constitutionally entitled to exercise. So you mentioned that Trump has already fired four inspectors general, like a like attorneys general, the plural is backwards on that. And I'll, yeah. It always trips me up in my mind. But he's kind of engaging in a slow-moving Saturday night massacre where he is just meticulously removing anyone who has oversight or accountability measures over him. Um, but he's already been impeached and acquitted, and it doesn't seem that there's an appetite or an ability to do anything further. So I guess my question is, what do you think is going to happen? Is there anything that can be done? Because to me, call me a cynic, uh, but he's going to get away with this. And that's just kind of my take on it. Well, you know, I think the way that we make sure that Donald Trump doesn't get away with this is um, by voting in in November. Um, it, it strikes me as, as pretty clear, or it ought to be pretty clear to everyone that um, this election really is going to be the, the most important election in our lifetimes. Um, you know, what all of these firings uh, remind us of is that the checks and balances are really central to our democracy. And, and the more we chip away at them, the more we veer towards uh, unaccountable um, authoritarian rule. And I think the position we're ultimately in uh, as, a, as a country is that if we want to save uh, our, our democracy, if we want to ensure uh, its vitality going forward, um, we all have to make sure that, that we get to the polls um, in November uh, and that we vote Trump out of office because I think we remain, uh, we the people of the United States, um, the last uh, and strongest check on Trump's abuse of power. So transitioning a little bit to the other big news that we've had over the past number of months, uh, the coronavirus pandemic. So how do you think, b being an alum of the Obama State Department, how do you think that State Department under the Obama administration would have acted differently or reacted differently um, to certain things like closing borders or working with other countries on testing capacity or um, things like blaming or questioning the Chinese response to the virus? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I want to take a, a step back from, from that question um, and look at things sort of big picture. Um, 
it's undeniable that the situation we're in right now is is on account of a catastrophic failure uh, of leadership from Donald Trump personally and from his administration. Uh, looking at the numbers just today in the United States, we have 1.5 million confirmed cases, nearly 90,000 people dead. Uh, and what's important to recognize is that this situation was really almost entirely uh, avoidable. But what Trump did was he, he set us up essentially for a, a perfect storm. So, you know, you've got someone who has an extreme distaste for science and expertise. And so what does Trump do? He shuts down the National Security Council Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response. He ignores repeated warnings uh, in his daily intelligence briefings. You've also got someone who's got an extreme distaste for international cooperation. And so he he fails to exercise uh, U.S. leadership globally and, and coordinate a response. And, and then third of all, he's someone who never was able to see uh, the pandemic really as, as anything other than a threat to his personal political fortunes. And that led him to do things like slow roll testing and social distancing measures, which would have enabled us to, to get ahead of the virus. So when you think about how an Obama administration, or frankly, any other reasonable administration would have responded, uh, I would say it would be different uh, in every way. There would have been an elevation of uh, experts, of uh, the scientists, um, and there would have been um, a coordinated global response to this crisis from day one. I can guarantee you um, that under an Obama administration, the State Department would have been mission control uh, for a coordinated international response to coronavirus. What's fascinating about the different reactions to coronavirus is we can see what's working in real time based on how other countries have handled the outbreak. Exactly. So, you know, I look at a country like South Korea, for example, the United States and South Korea had a confirmed case, the first confirmed case on the very same day. In the time since, South Korea has only had 11,000 cases and 263 deaths. And here we are in the United States with one and a half million cases in 90,000 plus dead. And I think that speaks to your point about how competent leadership makes all the difference in the world. Who's in charge matters. And I think that goes back to your earlier point as well, that we really need to do everything we can to get Trump out of office. Well, I think you're, you're exactly right there. And, you know, it's Trump's hubris um, that made him unwilling to look to other countries uh, for their best practices. Um, there's no reason that we couldn't have had the same outcome as South Korea, but we didn't have that same outcome because Trump chose to deflect. He chose to downplay the virus. He, he chose to treat it um, as a, a personal political threat instead of the real um, public health threat, economic threat, and ultimately national security threat um, that, it, that it actually was. Uh, and now we find ourselves in a, in a truly devastating position um, just a, a few months later. So, uh, you know, I, I couldn't agree more um, about the avoidability of this, um, but also about the importance of our response being deeper engagement. Um, I think it's very easy 
in uh, times of, of crisis when things uh, look bleak and they look bleak right now for people to want to to step away to throw their hands up in the air and say, you know, what can I do? Um, and, and the answer to every American should be really simple. Um, what you can do is vote. Uh, what you can do is ensure that come November, um, we elect better leadership. And, and that means uh, not only a new occupant of the White House, um, but that can also mean uh, better leadership in uh, the, the state house in your state. It can mean better leadership at a local level. Um, but we've got to engage uh, as citizens um, if we want to see better outcomes. So thinking back to your time working in foreign affairs, working at the UN, at the State Department, when you do channel checks with your former colleagues and your network across the globe, how, how has this affected America's standing on the world stage? Will this have a lasting impact when it comes to future foreign affairs or international emergencies? I think the entire Trump administration is, is going to have a, a lasting um, impact on uh, U.S. standing um, in, in the world. Ultimately, uh, this pandemic, this, this crisis is as much a test of U.S. leadership on the world stage um, as, as any war would be. And Trump has failed that leadership test. Instead of stepping up, instead of trying to build uh, a coalition of allies around us to, to coordinate, to work together, to, to build an effective response uh, to this virus, because the virus does not understand uh, global boundaries or, or state lines, um, what we saw was uh, just an abdication of, of that leadership role um, on the global stage. And, and what we're hearing from so many other leaders around the world is that this is the first time in their memories, the first time in their lifetime, that they can think of having seen a crisis of this magnitude um, that the U.S. hasn't been uh, at the forefront. Um, and, and that should be concerning to, to all of us because when the United States doesn't lead, um, other more unsavory actors uh, step into to the void. Um, they lead in, in their absence. And I think, for example, you only need to look at what happened at today's uh, virtual convening of the World Health Organization, where Donald Trump um, declined to speak uh, but President Xi of China did speak um, to see what the absence uh, of U.S. leadership means. What's up, everybody? We're going to take a quick break from the podcast and let you know that Millennial Politics is now on Spotify, Stitcher, the Google App Store, and iTunes, basically anywhere you get your podcast. If you like the show and like hearing from previous guests, such as Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, Congresswomen Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley, and many more, make sure you subscribe, give us five stars, and leave a review. High ratings and good reviews are some of the best ways people can find us. And if you want to see us continue doing this work, we hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So going back a little bit to uh, the domestic response to the coronavirus pandemic, as a candidate for Congress in 2018 in Florida, you had the opportunity to get to know some communities at a deeper level. Mm -hmm. um, what populations do you think are being 
hardest hit by this virus and why is that the case? Well, if, if you look at what the, the data is telling us, um, the communities that are being hardest hit um, are those that are least equipped to, to handle the blows of this pandemic. It is uh, individuals who are in, in poverty. Um, it is minority communities. Um, it's, it's the most uh, disenfranchised uh, among us, those who have the, the least um, access to healthcare, the fewest resources um, at their disposal. Um, and in a way, what this pandemic has done um, is just opened up uh, for all who wish to, to see it, um, the gross inequalities uh, in, in our country, um, the real structural um, deficiencies um, that have divided uh, our country into to haves uh, and, and have-nots. And I, I think that's why when I look at the kind of work um, that our federal government, that our Congress ought to be doing right now, um, I'm concerned with, with triage, yes, um, but I'm also concerned um, with a sort of bigger reckoning um, with, with the deep uh, structural and economic inequalities um, in our society that uh, have caused uh, the kind of problems that we're seeing today. So, so let's dig into that and we'll do a little thought experiment. I don't know, sure. you might think this is fun. You might think this is not fun, but turn back the clock. Let's say you, you did win in 2018 and Congresswoman Bear was, was on this podcast. What policies would you be fighting and advocating for? And do you think the federal response thus far has been sufficient? I'm going to start with the, the latter half of that, that question, because I mean, the, the first thing that I want to do um, is, is commend uh, the individuals who do did get elected to Congress in 2018, who from day one, I think, have done uh, an admirable job um, fighting for the kind of, of progress and reform that the American people demanded and putting a piece of legislation after piece of legislation um, on Mitch McConnell's desk, uh, only to see him um, idle away in the Senate and and not take votes um, on important bills that, that were coming out of the House. So uh, credit should really be given where, where credit is due there to to the new members of, of the House. Um, but, you know, if, if I were to take your counterfactual, um, if, if I were in Congress now, um, what I would be doing is is thinking big. Um, I would be thinking, you know, not only how do we stop the bleeding at this moment, um, but how do we rebuild uh, an America that's better, um, that's truer to our, our fundamental values? Um, how do we take this opportunity to remake um, our healthcare system to truly ensure that, that every American has equal access to healthcare? How do we do things um, like ensuring that uh, we have sick leave in this country universally, family leave? How do we solve the, the child care problem that's been just laid bare um, by, by this crisis? So I think this is really uh, a moment um, where if I were in office, I would be fighting um, for the kind of bigger changes uh, we need to ensure that every single person uh, in this country, regardless of the zip code, their zip code, regardless of their circumstances of their birth, um, is, is able to, to truly live um, the American dream. 
And then, you know, the second thing I would be doing um, is focusing really hard uh, on November and, and what's coming up. You know, we've got an election uh, in fewer than six months. And I think uh, we have reason to be concerned um, about election security. We have reason to be concerned about whether every person in this country is going to be able to cast a ballot in November. Uh, we don't know uh, what the pandemic is going to look like then. We don't know whether it's going to be safe to, to go out in mass to voting booths. And that's why it's so important right now for Congress to be pushing things uh, like universal vote by mail. Um, universal voter registration, um, to be giving states money to reinforce uh, and build up their election infrastructure. Um, we just don't have time to wait to make sure that every American can cast uh, or can exercise that most fundamental right in November, which is the right to vote. So, you know, we talked about a lot of these, you just touched on a bunch of policies that are you know important, especially in a time of um, pandemic like this. Um, in light of that, we would love to kind of do a little bit of a rapid fire, good idea, bad idea questions for some policies that have been floated to help stimulate the economy and help struggling families during this time. Are you okay with that? Uh, sure. Awesome. Um, so first, what are your thoughts on a universal basic income until the pandemic ends? Um, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear um, that we need uh, some sort of sustained uh, infusion of cash uh, into the Americans um, who, who really need it um, just to, to get by. Um, so I'd be uh, supportive of some of those proposals. We, we need to be able to stimulate the economy. Okay, so we're, we're a good idea on that one. Next, what do you think about a federal jobs guarantee for the 30 million or so that have been unemployed so far? Good idea or bad idea? Well, I'd have to see the, the specifics of a federal jobs guarantee. Um, but, you know, what, what, I, what I can say is that um, I, I think this is a time really for us to be thinking creatively uh, about how we can put um, more Americans uh, back to work. Um, something that, that I've loved proposals that I've seen um, have been calls for uh, national public service, universal national public service, um, getting uh, young people back to to work in ways that are going to help us um, rebuild uh, from this pandemic. So I, you know, I do think this is a time to be for us to be thinking sort of uh, New Deal like uh, in, in our mind about, um, you know, how we rebuild and get out and how we create jobs in the process. Got it. And then what about a sort of Medicare for all who have lost insurance during this pandemic and economic hardship, the government stepping in and helping those people? Look, I, I've been pretty clear um, the entire time that, that I've had any sort of public voice um, that I think healthcare is a, a fundamental human right. Um, it's something every American man, woman and child uh, deserves. Um, and certainly even more so uh, in the context um, of, of a global pandemic. Um, this is not the time to allow individuals to, to needlessly um, suffer and, and die. And we need to be doing everything we can um, as a country to ensure that we are protecting and ensuring the health security of individuals, um, not stripping it away from them right now. Okay. And then lastly, um, what are your thoughts on 
rent or mortgage uh, forgiveness for the unemployed or student loan forgiveness for those students that are just coming out of college and struggling to find jobs? Look, I mean, again, (laughs) you're throwing out really big ideas out here, many of which have uh, multiple different proposals um, on them. Um, But let me couch this all in saying that everyday folks are struggling. Um, this is this is hitting people hard. And, it, and it's not just that folks have lost jobs. Um, it's, it's that there's no viable job opportunities out there to replace income um, at, at this moment. So, you know, whether we are talking about uh, things like universal basic income or, or rent forgiveness, um, we've got to be thinking in a really, really big way about how we make sure that we get through this okay. Um, not just those folks, those among us who were are the most fortunate, who, who have enough resources uh, to, to get by, uh, but the least fortunate uh, among us. Um, that's our responsibility um, as, as a country um, to, to pull everyone through um, t- together. And so I am, you know, strongly a proponent of Congress uh, and the states um, thinking really creatively about how they can make sure um, all of us make it to, to the other side. We we kind of put you on the spot there. Sorry, didn't mean to throw any gotcha questions in your way, <laughs> no, but that... I think you handled them deftly and uh, very diplomatically as, as well. No problem. Um, so... Transitioning a little bit now, we're going to get close to the end of our our interview here. You mentioned a lot about the importance of November, um, and we've been really pushing, working up and down the ballot for progressive candidates that you believe in. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Joe Biden. I have to imagine you've interacted with him a little bit throughout the Obama administration. Did you work with the VP's office in any way when you were at the State Department or at the U.N.? Well, I mean, of course, the, the vice president's office played, uh, you know, a huge role uh, in foreign policy. Uh, vice President Joe Biden um, was a leader on that during the Obama administration, and, and he had uh, been for, for many years beforehand. Awesome. And, and did you have any personal experience working with him? I'm just trying to get a sense of what your perception of him would be like, not only as a candidate or a politician, but but as a person as well. So we can't always see through, you know, a Zoom call or a TV ad what he's really like. So I'm curious if you can let any insight to our audience. Yeah. Um, you know, in my experience, Joe Biden, you know, first and foremost, was always someone who, who led uh, with empathy, who was doing what he was doing because he truly cared uh, about the American people and because he he looked to his own um, roots, his own relatively modest roots um, and his ability to rise in this country and you know wanted to create those same sorts uh, of opportunities for every American. Um, and so you know that's, what I always saw shine through um, in his work um, was a reminder that that people were at the core uh, of why we make policy, and um, that when you're in a position of, of leadership, you, you have to remember um, who you're in the fight for. Uh, and you know, in my experience, Joe Biden always knew that that he was in the fight for the least fortunate among us. 
So I have to ask, we, we introduced you at the top as a former congressional candidate. Are there any plans uh, perhaps to be a future congressional candidate again? Look, I would love to uh, run for office again someday. Um, and I intend to, to remain actively um, involved in, in public service um, in my career, uh, because I think that is um, the, the highest uh, possible calling um, that, that I, I could serve. Uh, in 2020, though, um, my efforts are, are firmly focused um, on ensuring that Donald Trump is, is a one-term president, um, but also um, on ensuring that uh, we continue to open doors uh, for candidates like myself, which is to say uh, candidates that, that look and think um, a little bit differently uh, than most of the candidates um, we, we've seen that are younger, uh, that are, are more diverse, um, that uh, represent um, minority communities. Um, I want to make sure uh, that running for office um, isn't something that's accessible only uh, to the most privileged, um, but that is something that is seen as, as a viable um, and attainable goal um, for every single one of us. Um, because I, I truly, truly uh, believe that our government institutions uh, function better uh, when they look uh, a little bit more like America. And, and so that's the kind of work uh, that I'm doing right now. Well, we so appreciate the work that you're doing, and we appreciate you coming back and, and spending more time with us here. How can people follow this work that you're doing and keep up to date with everything that you're working on? Uh, well, it's, it's my pleasure to, to be here. Uh, always a treat to talk to you guys. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Lauren Bear. Awesome. Everyone, be sure to check out Lauren's Twitter and give her a follow. And uh, for our listeners, uh, thank you so much for, for tuning in. You can find the Millennial Politics Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, the Google Play Store. Be sure to follow us at Millen Politics. Uh, subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review. That's how people find us. And stay tuned for our next episode.